That's one of my favorite passages of scripture. When God reveals himself mightily to Moses, and Moses responds by saying, what is your name? God declares, I am who I am, which that name is translated as Yahweh, which you see all throughout scripture. But when God declares his name as Yahweh, he makes evident that he does not just exist, but that he wants to be present and active. It's not enough for God to just be, but he desires to be with us, to care for us, and to demonstrate his power and love to us. And while throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself in a burning bush and through many signs and wonders, Jesus decides to leave the heights of heaven, take on human flesh, live a spotless life, and then give his life as a ransom for you and for me so that we would know a God who does not only exist, but who is both present and active. Today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, we will catch a glimpse of when Jesus turns the question on his disciples. And he asks them, but who do you say that I am? And again, we will see that Peter accurately answers that Jesus is God, and not just that he exists, but that he is present and active. But before we get there today, I want to show you a few images. The first is a drawing from 1892 from a German humor magazine. What do you see? Do you see a rabbit? Do you see a duck? What if you shift your focus? If you saw a rabbit, can you see the duck? And if you see a duck, could you see the rabbit? What about this one? How many legs does an elephant have? You know the answer. <laughs> an elephant has four legs, but can you see them? <laughs> Here's someone, no. <laughs> Next slide. All right. Optical illusion number three. Do you see black circles inside of the intersections in those white circles? But if you focus on one circle, is there a black dot? No. I see red dots. <laughs> I know, my husband's like, I didn't see any of them. I'm like, well, there's something wrong with your eyes then. I don't know. <laughs> no. You can take the slide off. It's going to make your eyes hurt. Um, <laughs> but our eyes see what we want to see. Sometimes it will take multiple explanations in order to see something accurately or right. And often, just like our eyes, our own expectations and assumptions, maybe our own experiences, can get in the way of us seeing clearly. Today, as we jump into the Gospel of Mark, we will see how perspective 
plays a large role in who we see God to actually be. And so let's just dive right in. We're in Mark 8, and we're going to start at verse 22. Hear the word of the Lord. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. And we're going to stop right there. We have a lot to get to right today. But at first glance, we hear this story and we may wonder why it took Jesus two tries to heal this man. Could it be that this blind man's blindness was stubborn or maybe that it was harder to heal than any other person that Jesus has healed? Could it be that Mark, the only gospel writer to include this story, includes it to help us understand God just a little more clearly? As we see Jesus take two tries to heal this man, could it be that Jesus is powerful and yet patient? Don't miss that. It is not that God is not powerful enough. He is, but he is patient enough. When Mark includes this story, commentators suggest that he does so to help the reader understand what happened right before it and right after it. As Pastor Brian shared last week, Jesus is not talking to the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees to talk about actual leaven, But when Jesus warns the disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, he is telling his disciples to stay alert, be vigilant to all that God is doing in and around them, and for them to not grow inattentive to what God is revealing through Jesus. And when we look at the next section of scripture, we'll see that the disciples needed multiple touches in order to see clearly who Jesus actually is. And so when Jesus heals the man at Bethsaida, it's not a one and done. And even if this story does clarify what happened before and happened after, I don't want us to miss the depth and the beauty of the character of God. In this last week, my heart has burned with conviction that we have a God who is powerful enough to bring healing. Yet he is patient in how he brings that healing about. And so I pray that we would know a God who is patient with us and in the business of restoring and redeeming all that is broken. Let's continue reading in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, 
and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them to not tell anyone about him. Man, what a declaration and proclamation Peter has about Jesus, that he is the Messiah. But if we go back just a little bit further to what the crowd, what are the people saying about Jesus? They say people assume he's John the Baptist or maybe he's Elijah or, but he's a prophet somehow. But all of those guesses, did you catch it? Assume that Jesus is mightily sent by God. There's no doubt that Jesus has made a name for himself. But Peter has a more accurate answer. Not only has Jesus been sent by God, but he is God. He is the long-awaited Savior. But what Peter assumes the Messiah will do and what Jesus reveals a Messiah to do are on two opposite ends of the spectrum. So let's continue reading in verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have, have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their souls? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels, holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is the word of the Lord. So as Jesus begins to teach that the Son of Man must suffer many things, he speaks plainly to his disciples. No longer is Jesus talking in parables. He decides to speak ever clearly of what the cost of him being the Messiah will be. And right here, eight chapters into the Gospel of Mark, we've made it halfway, praise God. This is the turning point in the Gospel of Mark. For the first eight chapters, Mark has shown over and over again the power of Jesus that is revealed through his teaching and his healing. And now the following eight chapters are going to make clear Jesus' surrender. 
Jesus no longer will talk in parables, and he will talk plainly to his disciples. And he will explain three times over in the next few chapters that the Messiah is to be a suffering servant. And Jesus begins to explain to his disciples what is to come after they realize that he is the Messiah. It's as if their declaration of Jesus must precedent their understanding of what is actually called as the Messiah. Remember, the Messiah that Peter was expecting Jesus to be would be a mighty warrior, and he would defeat all of Israel's enemies. Not somebody who would be killed by the enemy. Peter's concept of Christ is far too narrow. He thinks that Christ will establish a reign of peace and righteousness that will overthrow all powers that hold God's people captive. And yes, and amen, God will do that. But the way he does that is not how Peter expected. And so when Peter responds, or sorry, excuse me, when Jesus responds to Peter, telling him that he is thinking only in human terms and not in God's perspective, Jesus rebukes Peter. He pointedly addresses, Peter is wrong. And while he may have answered correctly that Jesus is the Messiah, he still had some learning to do. The disciples cannot know Jesus fully without accepting the necessity of his suffering and his death. And in turn, Jesus explains that they cannot be disciples unless they accept that fate for themselves as well. Jesus tells his disciples and us that there's a cost of discipleship. He explains that just as Jesus will suffer, we too will suffer. And when Jesus lays out the demands and expectations of discipleship, he calls the crowd, not only his disciples. And so he opens up this cost of discipleship to anyone who is willing. And he presents three different demands of discipleship. First, he tells us we must deny ourselves, meaning we must utter the refrain over and over again. Not my will, but yours. And while some of us may have a radical opportunity to say, not my will, but God's will, a lot of us have to utter the refrain in the mundane, day-to-day, ordinary life we find ourselves in. When I was in high school, I read a book that transformed my life. And I I would say if I didn't read that book, I probably wouldn't be here. It was written by a gal named Shauna Nyquist. And she shares about an interaction she had with a friend of hers who was a missionary. And she is just a writer here in the States. And so she recalls this conversation she had with her friend. And she talks about how she was sharing with her friend how much she adored him for following God to the ends of the earth as he had been a missionary in very dangerous locations. And her friend listens and then pauses. And then how he says the same thing about the choices she has made in life. Her friend told her that 
He thinks she's the brave one for staying here, for choosing the ordinary life. He shares about how hard it would be for him to be in her shoes and how the life of a missionary was actually easier than staying here, being around his family, trying to work through the discord here. You see, for him, going to do that was easy. And I share that story because sometimes I think the church says things like we must deny ourselves, we must take up our cross, we must follow Christ. And for those of us who just live an ordinary life, we may wonder, what does that have to do with us? I think the reality of denying ourselves is being present with whatever circumstance you are in right now. It's not looking back five years ago or lurking forward from five years from now, but in the very moment you find yourself in right now, it's uttering the phrase, not my will, but yours. Next, Jesus tells him that they have to take up their cross. And while we might feel really removed from that language in today's culture, this would have been really strange for his disciples and the crowd too. Remember, Jesus hasn't been crucified yet. And so when Jesus said, you have to take up a cross, the people would have heard, man, following Jesus must mean a life of sacrifice and danger. And then Jesus tells them that they have to follow his way, not the way they would choose. Jesus' call on our life is a paradoxical principle. In order to save your life, you have to lose it. And not just lose it, but give it away. Not just give it away to oblivion, but give it away to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 says this, For the message of the cross is foolishness, to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How does the moment you are living in right now reveal God's power to the world? Remember, power as Jesus teaches it, not as the world defines it. You enduring the path before you pointing out how God is using you and reshaping you, allowing God to work in and through you moment by moment is how God may be inviting you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Think back to those silly images we started with today. Perspective changes everything. What if... Stay with me for a minute. The very place you are right now is the very place God wants you to take up the call of discipleship. To deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Because the truth is, the only place God can meet you is right where you're at. He cannot meet you where you aren't. And I don't know about you, but much of my life is spent wishing I was somewhere else than where I really am. 
How often do we perceive that if we were somewhere else, God would meet us better there? Remember how Jesus made the blind man in Bethsaida fully healed? It's because he was unsatisfied with partial healing. That same Jesus that healed that man sees what you are going through right now and is unsatisfied with the partial healing we may experience. Just as it took Jesus two touches for the man in Bethsaida to be fully healed, the disciples will need multiple touches of who the Messiah is too. But Jesus doesn't give up on his disciples. That guy, Peter, who makes this bold proclamation of who Jesus is, in the next scene, the one we just read, he's totally wrong about Jesus. And later, he denies even knowing Jesus on the night that Jesus is arrested. But Jesus tells Peter he is going to be a leader in the church. Over and over again, we see God reveal himself in scripture as a God who is patient and beckons us over and over and over again to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? We can all think great things about God, but in the midst of difficulties and heartaches, the truth of who we think God is is evident in our response. For example, while we may think that God protects us, a hard diagnosis can certainly shake things up. While we think that God loves us, when we experience rejection, we may doubt that. While we think God desires peace, as we look at the news and the world around us, we may wonder if he's ever going to fix it. You see, how we answer the question Jesus asked his disciples changes everything. And while our life and our circumstances may never change, our perspective certainly can. Our circumstances and our heartaches may never be healed in this life, but God promises to be with us in them. Even more, he promises that he will wipe every tear, that there will be no more death, no more mourning, no crying, no pain. And he says, for the older things have passed away and the new things, and he promises to make all things new. Dietrich Bonhoeffer sums it up this way. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ. We have it on the screen. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more... <laughs> Sorry, the lights went off for you guys. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> I'm going to start over just so we can capture it all. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before, and no more the road which is too hard for us. Once again, all self-denial can say is, he leads the way. Keep close to him. He leads the way. 
keep close to him. What does it look like for you in your daily life to keep close with Jesus? What are the ways that you can open yourself up to see God, yourself, and the people around you more clearly? When all you see is trees, how is God beckoning you to hope in the truth that there's more to what we see? That we have a God who is not only powerful, but is patient who wants to make suffering meaningful, even when we feel like nothing could ever be produced from it. I don't know what's going on in your life, and I'm not going to pretend like I do. And I'm not going to pretend that staying close to Jesus amidst it all is easy. Because Jesus tells us that it's not. The cost of discipleship, as Jesus teaches, is a road marked with suffering and heartache. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with a God who just tells us life is hard, suck it up, endure it. Instead, we have a God who endured it all, gave his life on a cross so that we may have life and have it to the full. Furthermore, he rose from the grave three days later, defeating death, conquering the grave, so that we may have hope. Because the enemy has been defeated. We know who is victorious. And yet for now, we live in this tension where we are called to deny ourselves, take up a cross, and follow him. Only you can answer how amidst what you are going through right now, how you can stay close to Jesus. And I can come up with a few ways, but ultimately, I believe that the only reason I'm standing here is to facilitate space for you to be with God. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to spend a minute in prayer trusting that the Holy Spirit is who prompts any sort of response. And I don't have much of an application in today's message because I think sometimes we short-circuit the process. And what we're going to practice today is we're going to allow the Holy Spirit to be the one that prompts you to ruminate and to respond. I want to acknowledge that this might be really awkward and uncomfortable for some of you as we spend time just listening to God. But I just want to remind you that God wants to speak directly to you. He wants to speak to the person next to you and behind you and in front of you. But for a moment, we're just going to trust that God actually wants to speak directly to you. And so let's join in prayer. Gracious God, we come to you right now just seeking for you to speak to us. God, would you let your word saturate our hearts? And would you help us to pause and actually believe that you want to talk to us 
God, what an absolute honor that the God of the universe desires to speak with us. In this moment, God, we think about how you are a God who is both powerful and patient. And so would we just pause and recognize the areas of our lives that feel so heavy? For the things that we feel like we have to shoulder on our own, God, would we trust that you shoulder them too? God, we acknowledge that we don't love the call of discipleship sometimes. The true call, where you call us to deny ourselves and take up a cross and follow you. For the path you often lead us on is not one we would choose. And yet, we trust that you are with us. God, that you will never leave us or forsake us. And so we pray that in this moment, your spirit would just prompt us to think through a way that we can stay close to you amidst all that's going on in our life. God, amidst the diagnoses, the heartaches, the distance with those we love, our anger, our anxiety. God, you know absolutely everything that's going on in our life. And so would you help us in this moment to trust that the only call for us is to stay close with you. God, would you strengthen us? Would you empower us? And would you give us hope that this suffering will not last forever? God, it is in the strong and steady name of Jesus we pray. Amen.